The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. You can't miss a common theme in our singing today. The hymns, the two anthems, have certainly picked up the theme of eternal life. If you're a visitor with us for the first time, you may not realize we've been looking now for several months at a topical theme in the Bible of after death, what? What what is promised to the believer in Christ after death? What could the unbeliever expect? We looked at that sad subject in the late fall. And now we've been looking for a couple of weeks at the wonders of eternity from the perspective of those who are new creatures in Christ. Last time, seeing the assurance of resurrection bodies. We don't dwell in eternity as wispy spirits. In the final heaven, we dwell as new people risen in Christ. We want to go beyond that today and think a little bit about what that resurrection life is might be like, and at least what people might want to think it's like. I'm actually reading from a different Scripture than your bulletin says. The parallel to Luke 20, which your bulletin says, is Matthew 22. Matthew 22:23 is where I'm going to read. Late in the week, I felt that this parallel passage has one or two emphases that bring something out a little bit better than the Luke passage does, but it's the same story of Jesus' ministry being accounted. Matthew 22, beginning at verse 23, Jesus is being tried and tested and questioned shortly before the time of his death by those who wanted to try to knock him down or challenge him. We read this, that same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh, and finally the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? since all of them were married to her. Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And this is God's holy word. Benjamin Franklin, in his life, made friends with some outstanding Christian people, most notably George Whitfield, the great evangelist. 
And yet, Franklin never became a Christian in terms of acknowledging a Christian creed or expressing faith in Jesus as his Lord. In fact, he explicitly said that was not his faith. It's interesting, then, that his tombstone has on it a wonderful epitaph which most would believe Franklin himself dictated. Here's what it says. The body of Benjamin Franklin, printer, with its contents worn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms. Yet the work itself will not be lost. It will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more beautiful edition, corrected and amended by its author. Fascinating. Benjamin Franklin, the printer and publisher, saw his life as a book that was going to be republished in a more grand edition. And yet, he firmly rejected faith in the Redeemer who could publish that book and bestow that resurrection prize. Last time I spoke to you about Christians existing in the final heaven, dwelling in the presence of God in resurrection bodies like Christ's own body, the Scripture says. We're told that when Jesus returns to history, that great consummating event of history, the Scripture says believers will be raised and changed to live in bodies somehow resembling the glory of His own body. Our personal transformation will match and correspond to what is happening in the whole cosmic order, according to 2 Peter 3, as the earth itself is cleansed and remade. The earth and the heavens remade according to Garden of Eden standards that haven't been seen since that time, since sin spoiled the world. 1 Corinthians 15, last time, promised that our new bodies would be recognizably the same and yet profoundly different. And the differences would all have to do with immortality. We can't die anymore so we won't be sick. And above all, we won't sin. We can't have a wrong relationship with anyone anymore because Satan and his dominion will have been destroyed. And it is said that those bodies we will have will be spiritual bodies. I said to you last time, not contrasted with real, but spiritual meaning ruled by the Spirit of God rather than ruled by the carnal, fleshly nature. A spiritual body is one in which the Spirit of God reigns supreme. Imagine your spirit, your will, and God's being like one beating heart, wanting the same thing and doing the same thing. I was a fan of the late radio broadcaster Paul Harvey and his gift for telling human interest stories. Master storyteller Paul Harvey, many of you would know who he was and remember his voice on the radio as he would come in and tell these little human interest tales. Always he had such a skillful way of starting the story, and there was a question or a mystery in your mind as he would tell it. And then stopping for an advertisement, he would say, and in a minute, the rest of the story. And then he would come back with a twist that would reveal something that would probably surprise you that you didn't expect from the beginning as he told the rest of the story. That phrase was in my mind all week as I was thinking about this text and where we are in developing this subject for a number of weeks and months here, 
Because it seems to me that having declared the truth of the resurrection body, what people want to know next is, all right, I'm going to have a resurrection body. What's that going to be like? And all kinds of questions. What language will I speak? Where will I live? What will my occupation be? What will my relationships be like? People have all kinds of curiosity about eternal life and this resurrection reality that the Bible promises. And there are many unanswered questions. And we, in our curiosity, want to try to fill in the gaps on those questions based on what we know right now. Exactly how will the remainder of our resurrection story play out as it goes forth into eternity? Well, I say to you this caution, we must take great care when we draw any conclusions about eternity to draw them only from Scripture. This is an area where people can easily become speculative. Writers on this subject will start to talk about their out-of-body experiences or their visions or their near-death experience where they saw a great light coming towards them and something else. And all those things are rather interesting, but they should be kept in a side category as not even approaching the authority of what it is to live in eternity, such as what we are told from the Word of God. We cannot move beyond God's revealed Word. So, in a sense, I'm, I'm putting a restraint on our thinking and saying, be careful, be conservative, and let God's Word rule. But in another way, at the very same time, I want to tell you there's a sense in which we should almost be wildly abandoning ourselves to the realization that eternity is going to bring things that are so amazing and so high and so removed from anything the mind or eye of man has ever understood that it's impossible to translate it into current understanding. Be biblically restrained, but have arms wide open to greet a reality that is going to as they say, blow you away with wild new things. Because God is is making all things new. Now, first of all, in thinking about this, Matthew 22 is a good text to look at it. It first of all shows us that issues of eternal life tend to separate true believers from mockers of God. The Sadducees of Jerusalem are interesting folks. They were almost to a man well-educated, aristocratic, and wealthy. And interestingly, they held control as a group over the operations of the Jerusalem temple and the priests who did service there. Now, this is pretty interesting. Here you have the great temple at Jerusalem in the time of Jesus and dozens of priests doing daily and weekly service there, various many tasks that had to be done, and they were controlled by a group of people who were entirely secular in their thinking. They were anti-supernaturalists. That's a big word. It simply means they doubted all miracles. They just didn't think God was a God of miracles. They believed in a God for this life. You did your best to impress Him, to please Him, to somehow live a decent life. And then after that, you were fertilizer for daisies. Nothing else. Now, let's face it. Our society is full of Sadducees. I come from a town called Amherst, New York, which uh, is not famous because I'm from it. But one thing that some people in America know Amherst for is 
the home of the State University of New York at Buffalo, which actually has become the headquarters for the American Humanist Society. And their press, Prometheus Publishing House, is there. And the Humanist Movement of America is headquartered in my old hometown. I'm not proud of that. They produced in the 1980s something called the Humanist Manifesto, which could have been quoted for the Sadducees, because here's what the Humanist Manifesto says about eternal life. Now remember, this is no thought of God or miracle in it. Quote, the total human personality is a function of the biological organism acting in a social and cultural context. There is no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body. Every Sadducee would have said, yep, that's it, all right. That's the way it is. Don't talk to me of miracles in relation to eternal life or even in this world. Isn't it ironic? These people were running the temple. And not only were they running the temple, but it's a well-documented fact that the Sadducees had their fingers and their thumbs in all those businesses going on in the courtyard around the temple, the very ones that Jesus drove out, making a profit off the business of the temple. They were lining their pockets. You know, if you only believe that meaningful life is for this world, I guess why not do the best you can do in this world, make the biggest profit you can make, because for you there isn't anything else. Now these are the people who joined the lineup with the Pharisees and others and said, we're going to address a question to this yokel rabbi from Galilee who has no degrees, who never studied. He can't be that tough to defeat. We'll have a question that will zing him and will absolutely knock him flat. It's our turn to ask Jesus a question. And so they dipped into the Old Testament, and they asked a question rather exaggerated beyond normal reality, but it was based on an Old Testament institution. Deuteronomy 25 tells about leveret marriage. You've got to remember that God had commanded that his people marry within Israel. Don't go outside of Israel and marry wives of the idolaters. So this is an outgrowth of that, the idea that if a woman is widowed, if possible, if there was a brother who could marry her and take her as his wife, he would then have children that would multiply that family which had begun and was cut off, and it would stay, in a sense, all in the family. Now, that was a biblical principle, the same principle that caused Boaz, by the way, to take Ruth, his, his distant relative, as his wife. Now, so the proposal was sort of based on the germ of something biblical, but it, it was an absurd proposal, wasn't it? Seven brothers, each one dies, same wife, married to all seven, and notice the text says she died, and I think, no wonder. You know, she was, well, worn out. But then comes this question, whose wife is she? Oh, we've got him now. He can't answer this one. He can't say she's the wife of number one or number two or number three because it, it can't be. We've got him in a logical trap. They were smirking. I wasn't there, but let me tell you, they were smirking. And obviously their question, while it was a straw man, was intended to mock the whole reality of future life and resurrection. Well, Jesus answered them. And in verse 30, he said, guess what? 
in the resurrection, they will not marry or give in marriage or follow the customs of this world, so your question is irrelevant. We will be like angels. That isn't saying we will be angels, but we will live a life like angels in not marrying and giving birth and doing those things again. There's no death in heaven. There's no procreation in heaven. There's no need to enlarge the population of heaven because those come there who are new creatures by God's work of grace in Christ in their lives. You see, the Sadducees boxed God into a this-world box and said, we presume to know what can happen in this world, and nothing else that, that isn't just the normal pattern of this world is ever going to happen. And so God won't ever do anything different than what he does in this world. Now, that's the normal line by anti-supernaturalist thinking, which has been around ever since then, for the last 2,000 years. There's no new ideas under the sun. And I could go to any secular bookstore today and pluck off the shelves very easily. Many books that would write about Christianity would purport to tell you about Jesus and the gospel, and what there would, the, the line that they take is the anti-supernatural line. Let's tell us the real story about Jesus here. Oh, yeah, we've got the lost gospel of Judas. Never mind that that was written 400 years after Jesus, but that'll tell us the real story about Jesus. Stupid, but people sell books. One of the things you need to look at in any of these things that come along is does this author, does this purported truth teller take a line that says, no supernatural solutions allowed or not. And if that's the line he takes, then you can put him in his place. You can see where he's coming from. What he's really seeking to do is mock God. I want you to notice verse 29 of our text, how Jesus says to them, you know, a lot of times when you're teaching, I've done this, a lot of teachers do this, a student asks a question, and teachers will say, now that's a good question. You know, you make your student feel good that they at least asked a good question, even if it wasn't so good. Jesus didn't say that to the Sadducees, did he? He didn't say, now that's a good question. He said, no, you're wrong. You're just wrong. And here's why you're wrong. Because you do not know the Scriptures, number one, and you do not know the power of God. I want to take my second and third points from that. My second point is from what they didn't know. They didn't know the Scriptures because Scripture reveals God as a God of the living, not a God of the dead. There's, some, there's a little thing that helps you to know here that's not right on the surface of what was going on here. The Sadducees as a group believed in only part of the Old Testament. They followed the first five books that were written by Moses. We call it the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and so on. The first five. They basically said, that's God's authoritative word. The rest of it, well, we're not so sure that the historical books and the Psalms and the prophets, they they aren't as good. Therefore, one of their reasons for not believing in the resurrection was the first five books don't say very much explicitly about the resurrection. Most of what we have comes from places like Isaiah or Psalm 16 or Job 19 or some of the prophets and so on. So they, so they were basically saying, Moses didn't teach it, so we don't believe it. Well, look what Jesus does. When you know that, look what he does. He zings them by going back to the Old Testament and saying, look, let's talk about something familiar to you folks. You all believe from the first five books in the, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, certainly. Well, don't you know that 
often God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what he's saying to them is, look, that's a present tense statement. God says, I am the God, not I was when they were alive. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus' logic is devastating. If he is the God of these people who once lived and aren't living now, then these people are in some sense alive. They're not dead. That is is absolutely revolutionary logic that turned these people inside out. They were, there's a little word I love, I use the word flummox. They were flummoxed. They had no idea how to respond to this. He had them. He absolutely pierced through their armor. He simply said, those who you acknowledge, who Moses acknowledged, are the fathers of the faith, God says, I am their God, therefore they're alive now. I wish I could have been present to see, this, see the smirks die on their faces. No rebuttal was possible. Jesus said, God cannot be God to people who have ceased to exist. He can only be God to people who are risen, people who are alive in his presence. You know, if you sometimes find yourself in the depths of troubles and difficulties in this world thinking, oh boy, I, maybe all of that that the preacher preaches about heaven and eternity is just some glorified fiction, I don't know if I can believe it or not. Bring yourself back to this simple, powerful logic of Jesus here saying, God says, I am the God of these people who lived in the past, and therefore they live. You have to throw away the Bible to throw away the resurrection because all of its logic points to the fact that people live in the presence of God now and they will live in his presence forever. But let's go on to the other reason Jesus brought up in verse 29 here. For he said, you not only don't know the Scripture, you also don't know the power of God. And, and therefore, you're trying to figure out eternity based just on the, your knowledge of society and the traditions of men. You're not factoring in a great factor, the power of God. I want to restate it this way in my third point. Trust in God's power removes every barrier to resurrection hope. Not knowing the Scriptures leads a person not to trust in God's power. And, and people think, well, <laughs> the best I can think about eternity is what I know now, and it must be kind of like this, and I have these kind of relationships now, so it must be that's what I'll have. And, and we have all these information gaps, and we fill them in by our own creative thinking, as people have done in every culture. Every culture has tried to fill in what happens in eternity. The Egyptian Book of the Dead said it was a good idea to provide a boat for Pharaoh. Bury a great big boat with Pharaoh because he'll need it to sail on some celestial sea. Warrior cultures like the Mongols buried their chieftain's best war horse and bow and arrow and sword and shield with him because he'd have to fight battles in the hereafter. And we may say, well, we don't do that, but still we insist on speculating about details of our heavenly future instead of trusting God's power to believe that it will be a reality so grand, so enthralling, so tremendous beyond anything we've known now 
that we really can't even get onto the borderlands of it and begin to grasp it. Now, this is where this marriage in heaven discussion in Matthew 22 becomes pertinent, and I want to come back to it for a minute. When Jesus announced no marriage after the resurrection, if you're a person in this world who's had only pain or misery from marriage, maybe that sounds like a good idea to you. No marriage, great. But let me tell you, there are a lot of people who've had happy marriages, deeply fulfilling marriages. I've had widows and widowers say to me, about, they've asked me about this passage. What does that mean? Does that mean I won't have my precious companion in eternity? I'm not sure I want heaven without her, without him. It sounds terribly disappointing for Jesus to say, in heaven there's no marriage as we know it now, at least for those who have good marriages or fulfilling marriages. And I want to say myself, I admit my flesh says, dear wife, Lord, you mean I have to give her up? Can I at least keep her as a roommate? You know, Lord, I don't like this idea. How do we understand this? I think we understand it this way. If we're resting on God's power in the making of all things new, Scripture is telling us that everything we will have is a better joy, a far enhanced experience from everything that we have now. You see, we think about it in terms of what we think we might lose. Lose my wife? Lose my husband? Oh, no. Don't think of it that way. How can we think of losing anything in eternity where all God's gifts to us are perfect gifts? And in comparison to everything we have now, what we're going to have then will only be better. Jesus said to live is Christ, to die is what? Gain, not loss. So don't think of it in terms of loss. I can't describe to you what it will be in replacement of marriage but I can only guess and understand and think I'm on biblical ground to say I will love my wife deeper and better than I love her now. Because your pastor's a sinner as a husband, and I do a lousy job of loving her now much of the time. Think of what it will be when we will be sinless partners. Think of that. Loss? No, not loss. Gain. And you know, I think there's a sense in which this passage can comfort Christian singles as well, who perhaps desired to find a partner on this earth and and never did. Not all singles desire that even, but but many do. And they're frustrated and, and sad and think of, why was there no special one for me? Well, you can think that in the resurrection of all things with Christ, nobody's going to be at a disadvantage that way anymore. Every relationship you're going to have with everyone else is going to be perfected and righteous and fulfilling, better by far than the best friendship you know on this earth now. It comes to this. Two weeks ago, I told you the riveting reality of heaven is the fact of the presence of God in Christ at the center of heaven. He needs to be the all-encompassing, arresting reality when we think of heaven. We will see him face to face, the Scripture says. That should tell us that every other relationship takes its cue from and is conditioned by that new relationship with him, Christ our King. 
He will be the all-consuming one. And how I relate with my wife and my dear friends and, and everyone else, you see, comes out of that. Richard Baxter, the old Puritan, had a a good statement on this. He wrote a big, fat book called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. If some of you are interested in this topic, you might want to pick it up. The Saint's Everlasting Rest by Richard Baxter. Here's what he said. We should not look in the face of other saints, other believers, to find fulfillment of that which can be found only in Christ. Nor should we expect too great a part of our comfort or enjoyment in heaven to come from them. Christ will be all in all, and his presence is what makes heaven to be heaven. Yet, he said, Baxter admitted, it much sweetens my thought of that place that there will be such a multitude of my most dear and precious friends in Christ. Christ himself, the central reality, all the other friendships and relationships stemming from that. God's limitless power is going to transform believers' bodies into the likeness of Christ's risen body, and he's going to fill in the blanks and connect all the dots of what that experience is going to be. I haven't probably helped you today if you came thinking I was going to tell you exactly what the rest of your story was going to look like. I can't tell you more than Scripture tells. And I'm not willing to speculate very far, but I'm only going to tell you it is better by far than anything we know now. Trust God's power because that's the way he does things. You can choose to live as a Sadducee today if you want. Live in the moment, grab all the money you can get and all the pleasure and security and fame that goes with it. And then ask yourself, how long are you going to have those things? Or you can look to Christ and invest all your trust in him. Look to his cross and say, he died for me, he rose for me. I'm depending entirely on him for the future. When you do that, your Christian life already is a small foretaste of the life to come. You know, I I like to watch the Antiques Roadshow on TV I don't know that much about antiques, but I've learned that when you're looking at pots and ceramics, they always turn it over, and they look for the maker's mark on the bottom, some little symbol that tells what factory made it or even what individual made it. Well, men and women in Jesus Christ, you've got the maker's mark. It's called the Holy Spirit. The righteous signature of God, your maker, is on you. You're already his new creation. And as he unrolls the rest of your story in eternity, you can believe it is a tale fit for a king or queen because that's the way our God does things. Amen. Father, I pray that you give us a well-rooted and grounded hope in Jesus Christ in this restless, messed up, sin-scarred, terrifying world that we live in. We don't look to some myth or fantasy of the future. We look to the reality that is hard, to the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We look to life in bodies that are glorified beyond what we can know now. 
Give us a well-founded hope to walk in this land of shadows and mists with that one squarely in our sights. For Jesus' sake, amen.